Welcome to Pod Zero. I'm your host, Chuck Nice. Pod Zero is a pop up podcast made possible by the My Weather Radar app and the Union of Concerned Scientists. We really can't thank them enough for their support, and we encourage our listeners to support them in return. On this episode, we're looking at environmental justice, or should I say, injustice. In the time of George Floyd, voter disenfranchisement, income equality, and a pandemic that disproportionately affects black, brown, and lower income Americans, does the climate crisis make things even worse? The short answer is, a brother can't catch a break. We'll talk to comedian Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show, green chef and environmental activist, Dr. Vita Etef, AKA DJ Kavum, and to kick things off, Peggy Shepard, the founder of We Act for Environmental Justice. Peggy has a rich history as a change maker in New York City. She has successfully combined grassroots organizing, environmental advocacy, and environmental health community-based participatory research to become a national leader in advancing environmental policy and the perspective of environmental justice in urban communities. Her mission is to ensure the right to clean, healthy, and a sustainable environment that extends to all. She serves on the executive committee of the National Black Environmental Justice Network and was the first female chair of the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I'm honored to have her on the show. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here and talk with you and have this discussion. Um, certainly, environmental justice um, is, uh, as an issue, has been around for decades, more than 30 years. There's been a movement of hundreds of grassroots groups around this country working on environmental justice, the disproportionate uh, impact of pollution in communities of color and low income. Um, sometimes we call it environmental racism because our communities are targeted by industry for polluting facilities, often because our communities uh, do not vote um, as, as, as heavily as they should. They are not as informed about environmental science and environmental impacts as other communities might be. And they don't have the resources to uh, maybe file lawsuits and you know, hire engineers and you know, uh, air monitoring experts that more affluent communities can do when they're trying to stop uh, key key environmental infrastructure projects. Yeah, yeah, and all of that is so very important. What you just said, because um, I, you know, we spoke to Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist, and she talked about um, the climate issue being so important because it's a threat multiplier, mm -hmm. and um, it of course is causes exacerbation. How much more is that threat multiplied in communities of color and low-income communities? Well, you know, a recent study, just to, to give the audience um, some context, a recent Harvard study indicated that uh, folks who are living in communities with um, a high level of air pollution are at higher risk of death from COVID. Uh, they've also amended that study to show that um, each point, each a point uh, difference or increase in, um, in air pollution creates another percentage of risk from death 
uh, from COVID and other chronic disease like heart disease, respiratory illness. So we're really understanding now that air pollution, and you know, a lot of people think, oh, that's such a big issue. What can I do about air pollution? Now we know how important it is that it really puts you at risk for other kinds of underlying conditions. And of course, we're talking about communities of color and low income, but all communities, uh, whether they're affluent or not, folks have underlying conditions um, where they can be put at higher risk. So air pollution obviously doesn't stay just in Harlem right. or uptown, you know, or certain right. areas of New Jersey where you are. Right. Um, you know, the air flows. And one of the problems of air pollution in New York City uh, is the coal-fired power plants in the Midwest. Yeah, um, it, it's the wind currents. There you uh, go. Air moves, as we know. Um, so yeah, it's the wind currents. And uh, under the Obama administration, the Clean Power Plan yes. would have, you know, um, you know, knocked out these these uh, coal-fired power plants. It would have banned them. And yeah. of course, uh, as soon as the Trump administration came in, uh, they rolled that back. Yes, yes, they um, did. They've done because clean coal. Beautiful, clean coal. <laughs> By the way, that's what he said it was going to be. And there's no such thing. But go ahead. They wrote. It's a total myth, um, as we know. And so he's rolled that back. So he's rolled almost 98 um, uh, EPA regulations have been rolled back or pending to be rolled back. Right. And of course, uh, those are issues around air quality, around car standards uh, for pollution, around um, coal sludge being able to, um, you know, be dumped into waterways in Appalachia. Right. Um, so all of these uh, environmental rollbacks really impact um, our health because what people need to understand is that there are environmental exposures from these facilities or from mobile sources, from power plants, from oil and chemical facilities, and those exposures impact your health. And right. so we see that environmental exposures add another contribution to the escalating health disparities that are experienced by communities of color and low income. We're talking about the damage to the environment itself. There's a cost to that. And then there's the cost to the, the, the health concerns, which we then see in people seeking out treatment or seeking out uh, the use of the healthcare system. So that's something that we all pay for, especially uh, if those people don't have healthcare, then what happens is the lack of treatment that they get exacerbates their problem and so that when they do get treatment, it's 10 times more uh, expensive. So this is just kind of like a vicious cycle. That's right. And when they do get treatment, they're already sicker. You know, what I found, so my organization um, has about five community organizers, in addition to our policy folks. And they are out door knocking, of course, during COVID, you know, we're on Zoom. But we have a strong membership of about a thousand members uh, in uptown neighborhoods as well as, as other communities in New York City. 
And what we find is that when you give people support, when you give them a space for dialogue, they take action. Mm-hmm. You know, over 20% of our membership lives in public housing. Okay. So that puts a lie to the myth that people of color who are low income uh, don't have time to think about these issues. They're working to put food on the table and all of those things. And they are working to put food on the table. But let me tell you, they are, they are experiencing these issues and they know that they're living in an environmentally degraded community. And if you give them some support and some voice, they are willing to talk about it, to take action. I, I think the perception is that black people and poor people, black and brown people and poor people don't care. And that is not the case. It's not true. Everybody cares about what they're breathing in their body. You know what I mean? Everybody cares about their kids and, 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 and the health of their children. You know, it's, it's, it's just, what are your opportunities to do something about that? I had a thought about what's happening with marijuana and what might happen with the green economy. Marijuana laws disproportionately affected, especially black men, going to prison, taking their substance, taking their time, which is the only substance that cannot be replaced. And then somebody says, hey, you know what? This is unsustainable. Let's legalize this, let's tax it, let's make some money. And then it creates the marijuana industrial complex, which then turns around and says, all the people that were harmed by this will now be left out of that financial enterprise transition. And are still in jail. <laughs> and right, right, oh my God. So h- how do we make sure that black and brown and poor people aren't left out of this, um, this transition? Well, one way is through job training and a pipeline to real jobs. Uh, Another way is for labor unions to open up to people of color. You know, we're all out here supporting good jobs, union jobs, but the unions have to meet us halfway. Mm -hmm. And they have got to begin to hire people of color. And that is not happening. It's not happening in New York City um, at the level it should. Um, and we really need a stronger conversation with labor around these issues. Uh, and it just hasn't happened. Now, you know, I've been in meetings with labor and the Blue Green Alliance, and they don't want to hear about, well, just transitioning um, from fossil fuel to green energy, meaning solar energy jobs or solar installation jobs that may not pay the kind of money that um, being on an oil rig (laughs) pays you. How do we transform our economy to one that works for all families, where families have uh, jobs that can really sustain a family and give them a good quality of life? So I think that's what labor unions want. That's what the unemployed uh, want. And I think we need to hold our politicians accountable for helping us to uh, move in that transition in a way that provides equity 
uh, for all communities. Thanks to Peggy Shepard. We appreciate all that she does in service to the community and the environment. Up next, he's a green chef, an honorary doctor of urban ecology, a prolific hip hop artist that spits rhymes that are healthy for the soul, the CEO of Plant Based Records, his label, an educator, an environmental activist, and his name is Dr. Etef Vida, AKA DJ Kavum. And I am so happy to have him on Pod Zero. Uh, Etef, how are you, my friend? Peace, blessings, man. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a great opportunity right now just to organize and mobilize. So, you know, peace. What's yeah. happening? Whoa, what's happening? <laughs> I appreciate you, man. Um, you, before we get in, into the actual climate thing, why don't we get a little background so that people know exactly uh, what you're about. Um, you are indeed a hip hop artist. Um, how exactly did you take such a like unique approach to hip hop with educating people about nutrition and veganism and climate and how all these things are interconnected? You know, uh, for me, organic gardening, the ideas of sustainability, you know, really has a cellular memory with me. I come from a family of sharecroppers. Uh, at the same time, I planted my first apricot tree at age three in the inner city of Denver. Uh, I had a really different background, you know, urban community, you know, wild, wild west style. Um, when I think about the ideas of where we're headed, you know, as, uh, as artists and activists and transforming, you know, my upbringing definitely is more of a, gangster rap influence uh, based on where I'm from, living in Denver, Colorado. And I had a lot of impact in my community that was uh, that's negative and seeing a lot of friends and family die from food related illnesses mm. and not have access to green spaces. And, you know, just wanted to be a part of something uh, was really important, you know, which is why a lot of people choose gang activity. But when it came down to like learning about spirituality when it came down around uh, diaspora and you know drum circles and really understanding more about myself I feel like around when I became you know more involved in my own identity in high school that's when I started to really focus on what it means to redefine the image of wealth in hip-hop culture started writing music went on tour with Deb Prez you know collaborating and wrote a song with them called work for youth and that song was basically talking about food justice. That led into a conversation of me writing an album called The Produce Section, which was the goal to get people to eat out of the produce section. Mm. That turned into a conversation of me being able to actually take that album, promote it, perform it in schools, and educators were able to use this as a form of knowledge itself. And so it's really a conversation of hip hop. To be hip is to be, you know, you know, that's just the wisdom. That's the, right. that's the knowledge right now. And that happens the movement. Right. We are in the, in the right direction. And that's how we use health inside people, health outside people. Uh, the funny thing is you, you tell people to eat. If I tell people to eat their vegetables, I sound like a dad. When you say it, it sounds cool. <laughs> it sounds like so. It sounds like something you should do when you say it. <laughs> when I say it, people are just like shut up. Uh, which, which, by the way, is very powerful, and that's what I really appreciate about you. What I most appreciate about you is the fact that your talents 
are on par with any of the best rappers in the game. I mean, when when I listen to you spit your rhymes, I'm telling you right now, there. I mean, you're you're untouchable. And so with that, I just want to play, if you don't mind, with your permission, a little bit of one for the hood, um, which captures your devotion to uh, seeing change happen on a level that um, you know actually helps people who are most hurt by climate crisis. So let's take a listen to that. I ain't seen the stars in the week. Cali fires gotta smoke out, can't see. Children stripped at the border, how can this be? They just want a piece of land just to go and grow a seed. Family colors like you and me. If we can strap at the mall over shoe piece, we can march on the front line for that new piece. Lyrics always meant to teach the blind, that's what I see. around like 13 that I was going to slow it all down and around. I've been vegan for over 20 years now, man. And um, not really understanding that same title and how it was connected to the climate. Uh, the fact that I was sequestering the carbon by growing food, the fact that I was composting, the fact that I was saving my seeds and really transforming my soil, the fact that I was actually adding on to help helping urban farmers and creating a access for traceable source food. I was so different that I didn't even realize that it was ahead of its time or even on the curb because my elders were doing it. I come from an idea of having access of, you know, that intergenerational dialogue that a lot of times, you know, young people miss out on. You know, I appreciate OGs in the hip hop culture. Chuck D is my mentor. You know, I've rocked the stage with KRS-One. I really appreciate the elders. For instance, um, the Biomimics album was the fact that I wanted to see people sequester carbon in urban atmospheres. So if we supply G's with hood seeds that they can grow in their community, you already know, it's the best thing that we can do to actually level the playing field when it comes to addressing diabetes, hypertension, high blood pressure, cooperative economics, supply and demand, creating a wellness, basically real green job with greens. And um, so we basically started the first sustainable album and record label to drop the album on packets of seeds, distributing this into the communities, not only in bodegas and vending machines and museums and really taking it on tour, but like it's the fact that people could get away from the whole CD plastic consumption, single use idea and really start to have a compostable album. So it's the first record label that's certified USDA organic, and it's called Plant Based Records. Wow, yo, man, that is that's admirable to say the least. You know, that is fantastic. How do you see the interconnectedness of everything that you're doing with respect to the globe and the global nature of this issue? Thinking about this culture has a lot to do with, you know, really getting back to redefining how we recycle, how we are not only composting, but really taking it to the level of talking to young people through hip hop and using art for social change. And now we can do that, dropping magazines, you know what I'm saying? Maybe you can drop a video with it, but to be culturally relevant, all you have to do is just study the science of it, right? Just have fun with it, you know? Right on. That's, yeah, man, you, you speaking my language right now. <laughs> so it's like, Talking to people of color about climate change and activism, for me, a lot of times look like 
this gardening idea of starting in our front yard really had to start with basically, you already know, removing that internalized depression. There is that cellular memory that makes Africans in America feel like it is uh, beneath them and ashamed. At the same time, regardless of our true soldiers, our, our indigenous and migrant workers who continue to work day and night, regardless that there are fires in the middle of California, rain, hell, or snow. I definitely want to see more of us activate each other to not only get involved in urban farming, not only just to sequester carbon, but not only just to be able to create your own green job, but yo, you can create a green space. You can say the bees too, because that's the pollinators. Oh, yeah. We're not taking care of the bees and just letting the weeds grow. Yo, we're going to be spiceless, flavorless, and it's going to be bland and nobody's going to like it. No one wants to live a life without spice. Just one more reason we should all do everything in our power to solve the climate crisis. Thanks to Dr. Etef Vita, a.k.a. DJ Kavum. Please check him out at chefetef.com. That's C-H-E-F-I-E-T-E-F.com. And support his foundation, VitaEarthFund.org. Next up, a very funny comedian who you normally see daily on The Daily Show. He's not afraid to use his smarts and talent to help bring attention to some pressing social issues. He really needs no introduction after his many stand-up specials and being the host of Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening. But I'll introduce him anyway. He's Roy Wood Jr. I saw an interview that you did with Billboard and you made this climate, uh, climate analogy about writing comedy, which I thought was brilliant. You said that you want to write a joke that captures the weather uh, that captures the climate, not the weather. Uh, first yeah. of all, thank you for knowing the difference, which is which is more <laughs> which is more than we can say about many senators and perhaps the president. Uh, so thank you for knowing the difference. But secondly, uh, what what did the climate change actually inspire you to make that that statement that way? That was. That was something that, you know, Trevor Noah and I have been talking about early on at The Daily Show, just in how, what he wanted the show to cover in the sense that, you know, you can't follow every single story, but if you look at enough stories, they all live under particular umbrellas. And so you start looking at each little umbrella and it's more about the state of the world as a whole and how, you know, the water, what was it I learned that, you know, the temperature of the ocean can change two degrees and that could be catastrophically positive or negative depending on which way it goes and so i started thinking about that and i was like oh yeah that's kind of where the jokes are it's not necessarily this one particular event it's everything that happened that led to this event it's like the hurricane is a story right. but warmer oceans as a whole right is a much bigger and deeper issue. And, you know, it, like to, to use police reform, I think when I, when I gave that quote, I was talking about, you know, police reform and how you can, you can address a particular shooting of an unarmed black person. Okay, right. fine. And you that's can address that out, every single day because that's how much it happens now. But go ahead. Yes, yeah, real talk. Yeah, but, but go ahead. bad policing is a symptom of a far larger condition within our system of democracy or right. democracy like that to me is 
I find that to be a more fun place to explore because now you're getting into the causation of an issue. You're getting into real prevention and ways to stop it that I think are deeper than, you know, it's the conversation that has to happen after the outrage. You know, it's the exploration that has to happen after the outrage. And so I think that's where, that's where I like existing comedically because I think somewhere in there is a nugget of knowledge mixed in with the jokes. And, you know, I'll be honest, like, I wasn't thinking like that before I started working at The Daily Show. The Daily Show definitely helped influence my stand-up ideology and some of the tenen you know, tenements that I live by on stage. Nice. Uh, first of all, let me just say that only a comedian can say uh, um, police shootings uh, is fun to explore. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, and speaking of the Daily Show, man, so, you know, uh, you did this piece on climate that I thought was great because the tenor of the piece captured really the state of our mental place with respect to this, to the issue. And right now I would say we're going to take a, a look at the piece, but the truth is that Comedy Central won't even let me put my own appearances from Comedy Central on my YouTube channel. So, so I'm not sure, but I will say this, if, we, if I can figure out legally how to take a chunk of that and put it right here, you're gonna see it right now. So take a look. Gotcha. Why is it so hard to do anything about it? What the hell is wrong with me? I blame evolution. Meet author Dan Gartner. He believes my willingness to sacrifice Antarctica, California, and most of the eastern seaboard for a delicious burger isn't my fault. Climate change is too abstract and distant of a threat to feel fear. So it's a learning disability that we all have from when we were cavemen. Yeah, that's it. All right, so in the piece, you're basically talking about attitudes towards climate and... Nobody's, like, nobody's scared of it. Right. Like, we gotta get people fearful of it. We don't care, you know what I mean? I thought that was a brilliant piece. I've always joked that, and, and so, you know, and part of that piece came from, you know, The Daily Show is a very, very environmentally conscious workspace, you know, just in terms of operating a sustainable, in, in terms of sustainability, right? Right. And so we started talking about, well, people gotta get hype about climate, like, like people are scared of tornadoes and hurricanes, all the hits, you know, you'll, right. you'll fear a forest fire, but you know what? causes all the forest fires? Drought, bruh. Right. So let's talk about that. So we, I, we joke, and actually this is the part that never made it into the piece. Oh, what I really wanted, what I really wanted to be in the piece, I wanted us to hire professional wrestlers to talk about climate change as if it was an opponent that they were gonna be facing in an upcoming match. No. And, because everybody loves wrestling. Oh, you ain't lying. At some point or another, even if you don't watch wrestling, you understand the communication vessel of wrestling. Right. I tell you, climate change, the glaciers are melting, and we got to do something. Like, right. it played that game right to camera. We ended up not being able to book the wrestlers that we wanted, uh -huh. and we got too close. And, and once we booked the other, like, actual experts on the issue, right. it was like, all right, let's just do the story. We don't have to have The Rock. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> He's busy. <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. <laughs> On The Daily Show, you like to look for hypocrisy. That's like your motivation for when you're writing something. It, it, is there a way to, where, where do you see the hypocrisy in climate and, and the climate crisis? I think the, one of the bigger hypocrisies in climate change comes from officials who will say recycle, 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 
and they would go, oh yeah, and make sure you use paper straws. But then they won't pass larger policies that will actually, um, how can I put it, affect you know greater change. Um, I'll give you a great example on a on a on a much smaller level. Mm -hmm. Um, I won't name the city because we ended up not doing the story, and I don't want to start a big man. <laughs> um, but there is a city in America that implemented a paper straw policy. Okay, cool. Every every restaurant must have paper straws. Then the city went a step further and said, "We're going to send someone in to all of these places to make sure." that you're adhering to the paper straw policy to help the environment so turtles don't choke on the, on the plastic. So far, so good. So then we reach out to the city and go, can we come with the paper straw policeman to see this policy? We think it's very cool. And the city says, no. Right. Go, well, wait, why? Like, we're not here to attack you. And, and that could lead to a bigger discussion of some political entities having fear of The Daily Show for fear that we're actually connivingly trying to make them look stupid in a segment or something like that. But this was, this was an instance where, no, you say you're doing this. That seems really cool. We'd like to see it tonight. No. <laughs> no. Is that, so then, is that, is the paper straw police, is that lip service? You know? Is that finger right? You know, what are we doing here? It's just to that point of hypocrisy where I think also as people, we're not always aware of a lot of, a lot of what, I, what we do implicates that. So, you know, I don't, you've, you've met right. my girlfriend, so she's in fashion. And she was talking about, and I didn't notice until I met her, and she's just talking about how, how much the fashion industry pollutes and just creating garment after garment after garment every year yeah. that goes unbought and unsold and ends up off in a landfill or off floating in the ocean somewhere and how we as consumers can right. start thinking about our buying habits you know like that's I think that that's part of it too so I just think there's there's the awareness of climate change and then there's also changing the psyche of people which to some degree might just be a generational thing and it may not it may it may be us just laying the foundation for a house that's to be built by our children when we talk about, you know, actual proper environmental Absolutely. change and, and policy. She makes a very good point because it, uh, not just the actual manufacturers of garments, but the actual manufacturer of materials itself, because much of that is a chemical process. So, you know, that uh, th those are good things to bring up. Yep. Well, fast fashion, man. Um, not that the, the cool thing, though, is there's not much need for fashion when you are under house arrest. I have figured that out. <laughs> through the pandemic. I would love to see the metrics on pant sales. Like, I would love to know, like, I feel like the first thing to go is pants. Yeah. Hey, listen. You just. It, it makes sense. When, when your whole life is lived from the waist up, what do you care about, you know? I'm literally wearing shorts right now, Chuck Nice. Look, I, like, here's, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Show your legs, bro. Uh, what are you going to do? Wait, come on. Seriously. It's like, why bother? What are why we doing here? Exactly. It's always good to talk to Roy and to hear his insights. My thanks to him for being on Pod Zero. That's our show. Thanks again to Peggy Shepard, Dr. Vita Etef, a.k.a. DJ Kavum, and Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show. 
Until next time, I'm Chuck Nice, reminding you that outside of survival, there's no reason to listen to scientists. Seen the stars in the week. Cali fires got a smoked out. Can't see. Children stripped at the border. How can this be? They just want a piece of land just to go and grow a seed. Family colors like.